Today we will be in session eight. So getting close to the end here. And the focus in this session will be the next major event. After the flood, we will look at the scattering. I've picked out just one word to try to capture all of the essence of these major events or series of events. You could also describe it as Babel or Tower of Babel, but uh, I think scattering probably is a better description of it. So we'll look at the scattering, and we'll follow the pattern that we've been looking to in the other major events. Now our focus will primarily be Genesis chapter 11, the first nine verses. But uh, we will also need to look at the passages that precede it, and we will pick up from basically where we left off in chapter 9. We'll look at the end of chapter 9, and I'll give you a little overview of chapter 10 before we get into chapter 11. But let me remind you of how foundational all the material that we're dealing with is by using the little foundation chart that I have here. Everything is based on the creation of all things, creation of the universe. And if you remember, that creation is very good. It is not like what we see today, because the next major event affected all of the creation, the fall of mankind. And that not only had radical effects spiritually on human beings, but it affected all of the creation or all of the universe. So we're living in a fallen world, and it'll remain that way until the Lord completes his work of restoring and reversing all of the effects of the fall at the end of history. The third major event that we've looked at is the flood. And that speaks to God dealing with sin. The way that God deals with sin is he separates out the evil, the sinfulness of man. He separates out and preserves that that he loves. So the flood is a story of judgment, but it's also a story of salvation, where all is judged, the whole world. And again, the creation is also involved. The flood uh, actually radically changed all of planet Earth, if not even beyond that. But it's also a story of Noah and his family that God preserves, along with the animals that uh, would have uh, been taken onto the ark. So we have the third major event. And we will focus on the scattering, which... Gives us some background concerning civilization, concerning where the nations come from, the outcome of the Genesis flood, the outcome of the three sons of Noah, and that's what we'll focus on today. And that will be the foundation to what God will deal with through one particular nation, beginning with one individual that he calls out from all of these nations. That man, obviously, is Abraham. And it's from Abraham that we have the nation of Israel, which is the next foundation there. And from the nation of Israel, God works to bring about a kingdom. And that kingdom is an expression of what God intends for mankind, is to rule as a sovereign, as one that represents God in 
in his sovereignty, with limited sovereignty. And this is how governments would fit in in terms of God's sovereign rule. The nation of Israel was to be a kingdom, and it was a particular kingdom. We'll look at that in some detail. The problem with that kingdom is that it had uh, sinful people led by sinful kings. And that kingdom eventually collapses, as we will see, which the later prophets anticipate the ideal king. So all of this is leading up to and is foundational to the coming of the ultimate king. We call him Messiah, and we know that from the New Testament to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he came, he was to set up his kingdom, but he was rejected. He died on a cross, obviously, dealing with sin in an ultimate way, establishing a church, announcing that he would return, and when he returns, he would establish that kingdom that Israel anticipates. And that kingdom will have all of the essential features of that kingdom that existed historically in the time that Israel was prominent in all of world affairs. So that's kind of the foundation. That's where we're heading, and that's where we're at in terms of the scattering. Now, I mentioned that Underlying all of this is some aspect of who God is, one of his perfections, and probably the overwhelming perfection that is illustrated here is God's sovereignty, God being sovereign over all things. And what we mean by God's sovereignty, he is supreme ruler, ultimate ruler, supreme ruler with supreme and absolute authority. He yields to no power, he yields to no authority. And this is illustrated in how he deals with mankind in these early early years. We've already seen that is in terms of how he deals with the Genesis flood, how he can affect a flood that encompasses the entire world. And we defended the universal aspect of the flood. So God is supreme ruler. We see that in thousands of places all over Scripture. Just a couple of passages to reinforce the idea. Psalm 103, verse 19, tells us the following. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. Now that's his ultimate throne. The verse goes on, and his sovereignty rules over all. And what is in view there is from heaven he rules over everything. Not only the material realm, but the entire spiritual realm. He is sovereign over all, and he rules over all. And we see that manifested in in many ways. Another passage, Psalm 47.7, and these are just a couple of many that we could look at. Psalm 147.7, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. In other words, we should praise the sovereignty of God. It is one of the most comforting of all doctrines to know that everything is under his sovereign control, and he does as he sees fit, because he's also omniscient and knows all things, and he has all power to affect whatever he desires to do. So he is sovereign over not only all things, but specifically all angelic creatures, Sovereign over Satan himself, all demons, all good angels. He's sovereign over nature. I try to bring that out when we talk about the Genesis flood. Both inanimate nature as well as animal creatures. 
He's also sovereign, and we'll see this further, and we'll get glimpses of that in this passage. He is sovereign over world history, over all of the nations, even from the very beginning. And actually the scattering is the story of God bringing about national entities. So he's sovereign over them, and he's sovereign over the kings and rulers of all of those nations. And therefore, he is also sovereign over all individual human beings, and that means he's sovereign over our lives as well. So that's the underlying doctrine dealing with who God is that I think uh, we ought to focus in on as we study these passages dealing with the scattering. So turn to chapter 9, and let's look at the last few verses there. This is immediately after the Noahic Covenant. Remember, we looked at that as a new beginning where God assures Noah that he will never bring a flood. Noah would have needed this reassurance. I gave you some background on covenants and that God has no need to enter into covenants, but he entered into to give double assurance so that Noah would not fear another flood and to also know that God is sovereign over all of the natural realm and that he has control over all things that take place in that natural realm. That's at the heart of the Noahic covenant. And that leads to the family of Noah, and there's not a lot of detail that's given to us, and actually the detail that is given to us is uh, somewhat negative. It it, uh, focuses in on the sin that exists in this family. And even though God judged sin and judged mankind, we know, because of what the Bible teaches concerning human nature, that all are sinners and we all have the sin nature. So even though Noah and his family were people that uh, would have been believers in the one true God, they are still plagued with the sin nature and it eventually comes out we'll see the beginnings of the cycles of sin that we talked about earlier. So God will deal with this sin, but we are made aware of it in verse 20, where it says that Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, so he's beginning to follow through in what God told him concerning the dominion mandate or the creation mandate. Part of that is subduing the earth, so in verse 20 he does that. But... As the creation we've seen in the fall rebels, and uh, we need to be wise in dealing with it, Noah shows some lack of wisdom here, and he drank, verse 21, of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Now, I don't want to dwell on what's probably in view there that goes a little bit beyond what we want to accomplish here. I just want to point out that it just illustrates the, the sin of Noah, And, in fact, the sin relating even to the creation here, where rather than he subduing it, the creation subdues him in the form of drunkenness. And then we see that same sin nature passed on to the descendants, as is illustrated in the following. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So you see the son Ham... And focuses on Canaan, interestingly. I'll comment some more on that in a moment. But Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders. 
walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. So they show respect, in contrast to Ham, who seems to exploit, at least on some level, the condition of his father here. And the sin of Ham is brought forward to us here. The other two brothers cover the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. And then verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he became aware of whatever that sin was. And then in verse 25, we have the beginning of a very interesting passage. And I take this passage as more somewhat of a prophetic oracle. So I see this as somewhat prophetic. In other words, it is not Noah pronouncing kind of a fatalistic curse on Canaan, who is in view in verse 25, but it's more an oracle of him looking down in history, because Canaan, obviously, the sin is Ham, but the focus in terms of the cursedness is Canaan in verse 25. So he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. So the focus is on another generation after Ham. So it's prophetic. It looks forward, and it looks at outcomes here. It looks at the outcomes of not only these three sons, but eventually it would uh, eventuate in these peoples that would be the descendants of the three sons, Ham, Japheth, and, and Shem. And the first one that is in focus here would be the descendants of Ham, epitomized by by Canaan himself. So let's take a look at this curse of Canaan, and then we'll go into verse 26 and the following passage there. It's interesting that uh, Ham is not said cursed, but we're going to find out later on that uh, one of Ham's descendants named Canaan Now, why do you think that's the case here? Why does it say Canaan rather than Ham? Ham was the one that sinned, but in in this vision, Noah is able to project forward and look at a descendant of Ham by the name of Canaan. And he's looking at it not only as an individual, but he's looking at it kind of as an ethnic group. Well, it's like David wasn't cursed. Coniah cursed is what prevented Joseph's family from becoming Messianic life. Mm -hmm. So... David wasn't cursed. He was the father of. But I... Yeah, there might be some parallels here. But I think Canaan specifically, this is written to the children of Israel. The children of Israel are going to have a history in the future with Canaanites. So right off the bat, they see where Canaanites not only come from, but they're going to see that they're a cursed people, and they're going to come into contact with them when the full extent of that cursedness comes to the forefront. It's not that God is making them do these things. It's more that, by observation, Noah is seeing how cursed they are going to become. Does that make sense? And they will be, we're going to see this later on, we're going to talk about the conquest of the land, and we're going to come back to Canaanites but we're already introduced to them here. And we already know where they come from, and we already know their tendency, and then later on we'll find out where that tendency works itself out. The writer, you want to read verse 26. So he's going to be a servant of servants. This is over all the descendants of Ham 
And particularly the Canaanites are going to be servants of servants. 26. He also said, Blessed, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, so it reiterates the servanthood of Canaan and a blessing to the God of Shem. Not so much Shem, but the God of Shem. But Shem, by implication, is going to be related to God. There's going to be a relationship between Shem and God. And this foresees an entire line of descendants that go all the way to the Messiah. Messiah goes through Shem. All of the nation of Israel goes through Shem. Many instruments that God wants to use are from that family, from Shem. And God is the one to be blessed because God, in his grace, that works in men such that he produces these things. You want to read Mark 27, or... Not Mark 27. Mark, you want to read verse 27 in Genesis? <laughs> May God enlarge Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, again, reiterating Canaan as servant of Japheth. So he's going to be subdued, basically. And we have the third son. So we have Shem, and we have third one, Japheth, here. And he has a future here. And he will... Be enlarged. He, he, it's going to have a bright future, it looks like. Let him dwell in it. So that's a brief summary of this prophetic oracle. If we had more time, we could spend an hour on this. There's a lot of insight there, and I could give you tendencies of these groups, but we need to move on. Hmm? I gave you one. Uh, the Canaanites are going to be a very corrupt and a very uh, debased culture, and it works itself out. And I, I gave you the one on Shem. Shem's going to be related to God. And there's everything that God produces is going to come through Shem. Number six, we have preparation for what God is going to do. And God is going to be selective in the Old Testament to work through a particular line. And it's going to be through the line of Shem. It's going to be through the line of Shem that God is going to be selective. Now, we'll talk more about this selective idea because a lot of believers have a hard time with a doctrine of selection. So we need to comment on it. So here is kind of the corruption of sin in the family of Noah and kind of how it's going to work itself out in time. Back to our little slide. Remember, cycles of sin. I gave you this slide already. We see them again beginning with Noah. Remember the first one? What's the first cycle of sin? Starts with God. And what does God do? God works a work of grace. What's the work of grace at this point here? Saves humanity from its own destruction. Saves a family. That's the work of grace. Salvation in this example here. What happens next, secondly? What we just talked about, right? We have the... Corrupting effects of sin. Sin begins corrupting effects, and it began with Noah. And then what do we have? Number three, God permits sin to continue to corrupt. Remember that one? God patiently endures sin, and sin reaches its full corruption. So the time between Noah and the scattering is this time where God is patiently enduring sin, and then at the Tower of Babel, sin reaches its full corruption. And God, what does he do next? What's fourth cycle here? God intervenes to judge and save. That's the Tower of Babel. 
God intervenes to judge, and in terms of the Tower of Babel, not only is it a judgment, but it's a preservation, not so much a salvation, so much as like Noah, but God intervening to change the circumstance, to deal with sin, basically. Those are the cycles of sin. We're, we see another cycle here. We're going to see this again later on. So in that oracle, we have Canaan, we have servitude, that's the emphasis of Canaan, and will become Israel's enemy. And, and Canaan is mentioned rather than Ham, the descendant of Ham, because eventually Israel is going to have problems with the Canaanites for much of its Old Testament history. Japheth is enlarged, which is a blessing. He's going to expand, and he's going to occupy a large area as well. And perhaps world empires might come through Japheth. Maybe not every one of them, but that might be most of the world empires may come through Japheth. Shem, Messiah comes through Shem. Kind of a summary of the oracles there. And what else comes through Shem? Scripture. Scripture comes through Shem. He's Moses' ancestor. Yeah, yeah, he has to be. He's an ancestor of all the Jewish people. So that's a little bit of the background leading up. It's kind of the end of the early history of civilization. Then in chapters 10 and 11, we have the early history of the nations. And chapter 10, you could describe as the origin of the nations. Where are the nations? Where do they come from? And how are they related? What are their relationships? Chapter 10 is a very interesting, what you might call a genealogy. It's a different kind of a genealogy. It's a kind of a horizontal genealogy. It's called a table of nations. So we've seen the creation, we've seen the fall, we've seen the flood, and now what we want to look at, I'll give you a little introduction, the scattering, which is shortly after the flood. I'll give you another timeline to show it more precisely. Corrupting effects of sin, first implication, second implication. Let's take a look at this post-flood conditions to kind of set the stage. These are the physical conditions to set the stage for the Tower of Babel. Environmentally, we have oceans that are more extensive now, after the flood. Different configuration of oceans. Secondly, we have new continents and new mountains. Remember we read that passage, Psalm 104. Mountains produced as a result of Genesis flood. New ocean boundaries. New continents, that's our flood model. All of that geological upheaval continues after the flood and slowly kind of comes to stability. So we still have lots of tectonic effects shortly after the flood. In fact, the Ice Age would be included. Climate changes, a totally different climate condition after the flood. You can include, the, like I said, the Ice Age there. I gave you the scenario how the flood would produce an ice age. Barren lands until the repopulating of plant life perhaps looks similar to that Mount St. Helens photo I showed you, until new plants grew. And by the way, they predicted after Mount St. Helens that it would be like centuries before the area would come back to normal. Already it's almost back to normal. The plants have just sprouted very rapidly and grown very rapidly. So also, right after the Genesis flood, you'd have rapid expansion of plant life all over the face of the earth. 
you remember seeds would be carried by all that sediment that produced land masses? There'd be much an abundance of seeds that would be planted all over the world. Well-watered Middle East, we have a mention of that in the book of Genesis, indicating that the area near Sodom, remember Lot took the area of Sodom because it was well-watered? It almost implies that it's different from the conditions today. Conditions today is quite a bit more barren, but it looked like it was quite a bit more lush in the time of Abraham. So this is closer to the flood, and conditions would be perhaps different than after few thousand years. So this is the conditions after the flood. In terms of animals and man, we have rapid animal multiplication. And again, they would multiply very rapidly. And we have uh, animal migrations to the four corners of the earth, really. Dinosaurs would become extinct. And there's some scientific reasons why this would happen. If the conditions were drastically different after the flood, from that previous slide I just showed you, the flood conditions would be very different from those conditions. It appears that the environment after the flood was too harsh for dinosaurs to survive. So those guys were there before the flood with all the results. Yep. Dinosaurs, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I believe that... Well, I believe that dinosaurs went on the ark as well. But they would have died out, and there's examples, like Job describes a dinosaur. There's examples in history and tradition that seem to describe dinosaurs. So they probably existed for a while until they became extinct after the flood. After the flood. I suppose that was something else existed. I mean, survived. Well, they required a different, a more probably tropical environment than what was after the flood, and not-so-harsh winters. That canopy theory theorizes that the uh, the temperature of the earth was more constant and more humid and probably more tropical. So lots of plant life. Dinosaurs require lots of plant life. Did they eat other stuff like um, They're reptilian, so I'm not sure. That's a good question. They eat plants. Primarily, yeah. They might have. <laughs> for dessert, probably. <laughs> yeah, they probably ate people for dessert. I commented on human longevity and how it declined on an exponential decay curve and began to stabilize. Now, this is very important, and it's going to come into play when we talk about these early civilizations. If you want just the biblical data in terms of the Genesis chronology, in terms of the patriarchs pre-flood, Long ages, Methuselah being the oldest, over 900 years, and then they decrease after the flood, remember? They decrease in the age. But notice, Shem would have lived well into the lifetime of Abraham. Abraham could have spoken with Shem. Even Noah, in fact, the the time frame here, Noah, I think, dies like a year before Abraham is born, given the Genesis chronology. Now, I'm going to expand this later, but this just kind of gives you the chronological setting of what we're talking about here. And if you want to know where Babel is, we don't know. Babel is not dated in the Bible. We are given a little hint. In fact, let's look at that in chapter 10. And I'm going to come back to chapter 10, but real quickly, look at verse, whose turn? Randy, you want to read verse 25? 
and unto Peter were born two sons. The name of one was Felix, for in his days was the earth divided, and his brother's name was John. Okay. See the little phrase? In his day the earth was divided. Now it's not clear what that means. It could mean geologically. A lot of scholars, conservative scholars, think that uh, what he's talking about is the Tower of Babel here. And if that's the case, in the chronology of Peleg, in his days, he was born about 100 years after the flood and lived, I can't remember, 200 years or something. It says so somewhere in there. But he, if he lived 200 years, then Babel would be in that time frame probably closer to 100 years after, after the flood. Because this is a very short period of time from what we would call Babel and actually Abraham. And what we're going to propose here, or I'm going to propose, is that you have to account for all of the civilizations that exist in ancient time, but after the flood. Because everything's destroyed. And everything has to come through Noah in this very short window of time. So I would put Babel closer to 100 years after the flood rather than 300 years after the flood, just to allow for more time in there, because we're already pushing it. So we have also not only human longevity, as that slide indicates, but human migration. We have long ages, and then they de decrease, and you also have human migration. And this probably took place. Remember, what was the part of the Noahic Covenant and what God introduced it with? Be fruitful and multiply. The creation mandate and subdue the earth would be, you know, go out. And the suns, perhaps early, may have gone out. But especially, and God introduces, we didn't look at that verse, but he, he allows the eating of animals. And for Noah, this would be a new thing. This is probably post-flood carnivorous diet. So before that, they were, they just... Ate plants. They were vegetarian. No. No, there were sacrifices. But they, it, it doesn't tell us. The text doesn't tell us, but it implies, because of what it says in chapter 9, God permitted the eating of meat after the flood. Conditions are different. We probably need a higher protein diet. Let's talk about the origin of the nations and artist's conception of the Tower of Babel. Let's take a look at what is described as the Table of Nations. In fact, Table of Nations there. Where did we leave off? It's Connie, why don't you read verse 2. I'm just going to highlight some things. It, Genesis 10 is called the Table of Nations because it lays out the nations, ethnic groups, peoples, and just right up from the beginning, these are probably the peoples that existed at the time of Abraham. And that's why they're presented here. So read verse 2. It kind of starts us off. Okay, so we have, first of all, the sons of whom? Japheth. And then through verse 5, we have basically the descendants of Japheth, and we'll come back to them because they are important, and we'll look at them broadly, but I, I want to give you kind of a picture of where they eventually ended up. I'm going to read verse 6, Linda. Cush, Israel, 
13. Okay, very important sons. They are going to play a big role in Bible history. Mishraim, who is that? Egypt. Egypt, yeah. Put, who's put? Libyans. Libyans. And then we have Canaan. And, and, well, I should have said Cush. Who's Cush? Probably Africans. Yep, I'll show you all of that. So, number, uh, verse 6 there, we have this, this, the other son, Ham, and leaving the most important, not because he was the oldest, he was probably the middle son, to uh, later on. But before we get to Shem, let's look at verses 8 through 11. Who wants to... Oh. He was the first on earth to be a mighty He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, mighty Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Okay, Nimrod, some believe, may be the leader at the Tower of Babel. Now, it's not clear, but there's Nimrod, and it tells you he's a mighty hunter. Attention is called to him. Most of the names in uh, this table are of ethnic groups and eventually nations. But there are a few that are mentioned specifically like Nimrod. And that's why we read that. Verse 21, Mackenzie, do you want to read it? To Shem also, the father of all the children of Egypt, the elder brother of Jesus' children. Okay, so now we have the descendants of Shem. And like I said, he's last because he's the one that's of most interest. It's through Shem that eventually the genealogy will be carried forward all the way to Messiah, actually. Loretta, verse 32. That's, I already explained, 25. Yeah. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to genealogies, and their nations, and out of these nations, were separated on the earth after the flood. Okay, kind of a summary of the table. And it explains what the table is all about. These are the sons, or the descendants, you might say, of these three major sons of Noah. According to what? Genealogy. By their nations. In other words, nations. Now, I'm going to talk about nations and the importance of nations. We'll talk some more about that. And out of them, the nations were separated, anticipating the next passage in chapter 11. On the earth, after the flood. Okay, that's all I want to read out of here, but now let's look at this table of nations. So we have Japheth, who's probably the oldest, Ham, who's probably the youngest, and Shem, who would be in between, but he is the chosen. He's the one that God will choose to produce the line that goes to Abraham, and through Abraham, the nation of Israel, and through Israel, Messiah. And this is why we have the table of nations, so that the children of Israel will understand the peoples that they will have to deal with throughout their history. And particularly, that one descendant of Ham, by the name of Canaan, and that ethnic group. This table is important for a lot of reasons. Number one, this is really the only authoritative source anywhere, even in the secular world, that gives us an explanation of where the nations came from. The secularists don't have an explanation for the origin of the nations. They have a lot of theories, but none of them are very uh, sound. They overlook 
that pass over Genesis 10. I think Genesis 10 is crucial in understanding where all the ethnic groups of the world come from. So you're saying also they, they reject the table of Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's part of the Bible, and you can't, you know, the Bible, what about, you know, throw that away. Yeah, it's just mythical. But if you look at it carefully, it gives you a lot of insight into a lot of things dealing with the nations, the origin of the nations. So there's no other record, really, amongst peoples or archaeologists. This is a unique record, and we would consider it an authoritative source of all ethnic groups. You have to, by the way, you have to trace all races, all ethnic groups, all nations. This is what Acts 17 tells us. We'll look at that in a moment. You have to trace them back to Noah, and you have to trace them also through those three sons. And then, obviously, Noah, you would trace back to Adam. So when God created Adam, he built within the DNA of Adam all of the characteristics of all the ethnic groups on the face of the earth. And then that also had to go through Noah. There might have been some ethnic groups that didn't obviously didn't survive the flood, but they also had to flow through Noah and the three sons. And if you're careful, you can trace ethnicity back to these three sons. And I'll, I'll give you kind of a scenario as to where a lot of them come. That was the reason I asked, because they rejected, they absolutely rejected it. How can they do that? Because the secular world, the historians trace those things, linguists trace those things, and it's there. If you're saying, even though it's there... It's that, they, well, yeah, because it's biblical. Everything biblical they would reject. So they come up with their evolutionary theories to explain what you're describing there. Secondly, it's important because it gives us the national distribution at the time of Abraham. The peoples that existed at the time of Abraham, the nations. Thirdly, it re-emphasizes this idea of there's really one race, the human race, one family. There's variations, there's differences, there's ethnic groups that have developed over time but really one family. And I'll give you that Acts 17 in a moment again. Fourthly, it's important because it argues for historicity because it basically does lay a good historical foundation for the origin of the nations. That the secularist really has no alternative, even though the secularist rejects the table of nations. So we're at an advantage to understand where the nations came from because of Genesis chapter 10. Fifthly, it also shows the fulfillment of that oracle of Noah, at least some fulfillment of it, as these nations work themselves out, particularly the Canaanites. So, five reasons why the table of nations is important. Now, let's look at each of these. Now, we didn't read all of these names, but if you look in uh, chapter 10, you will find the descendants of Japheth. Here's where they eventually settled. Everyone started over here somewhere. Well, they had to come off the ark, which the ark was right here. And it appears that they settled this, what's called the Fertile Crescent, the Mesopotamian area. 
and the descendants of Japheth tended to go north and west. Peoples like uh, the, the Germanic peoples, who are an ancient ethnic group, Gomer seems to be the descendant of the Germanic peoples, so Germans can trace their lineage back to Gomer through Japheth. Javan, uh, probably the forefather of all the Greek peoples. Meshech, uh, southern Turkey, Tyrus, northern Turkey. Tubal, which is also mentioned later on. Russians, probably descended from Tubal. Magog, that's going to be mentioned even in Revelation chapter 20. Madai, so that's where Japheth's t- descendants tended to go. And nations were formed from these peoples. Ham, there's Put, the Libyan area. Misraim is Egypt. So the Egyptians, maybe not today, I'm not sure, you know, it's a mixture of different Arab groups, but historically the descendants of Misraim would be the Egyptian empire and the Egyptian people of Old Testament time. Cush, Ethiopia, and eventually probably all of Africa. And then Canaan. There's Canaan, which kind of stands out, which children of Israel will have the most dealings with Canaan. They have a lot of dealings with Misraim, too, but mainly Canaan. So, Canaan No, no. The Arabs come some, they come through Shem. Yeah. Yeah, I'll show that slide next. There's the descendants of Shem. Lud, probably this north Eastern Turkey area, the Arameans from Aram, the Assyrians through Asher, the Elamites through Elam, or Pakshad, this is where Abraham comes through. So they are Middle Eastern, and probably a combination of Elamites and perhaps a combination of Japhethites would be the Eastern peoples that would have migrated all the way to Japan. China, Japan, Mongolia, and the East. What about the Americas? Would you say to cross cross the Straits to North America? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably from Elam, and, or the combination of Elam and intermarriage between tribes or peoples there. Where uh, Let me show you the next slide. Elamites and Maedai, there's different theories, but some scholars believe the intermarriage of Elamites and the people from uh, that are Descendants of Maedai would have migrated east. East where they Well, they would have gone to China, Mongolia, huh. yeah, and probably crossing the Bering Strait. Now, remember, there's an ice age. With an ice age, you'd have land bridges to all of the continents, where people would just walk. We'll talk some more about that. So these are the. This is the table of nations in terms of the first generation of descendants after the three sons, and most scholars see these relationships. So the the light blue Japheth, the green dark green that would be Ham's descendants, the red would be Shem's descendants, and these are peoples that will also occupy a lot of Old Testament. Empires and peoples, Assyrians, Arameans, eventually Babylonians, they would be Shemites or Shem's descendants. And that just superimposes that same slide with modern day boundaries. So this is Libya, see that Libya put, uh, Misraim, that's Egypt, Kush would be Ethiopia, 
Canaan would be the Can uh, would be Palestine actually. This is present day Iraq right there. Obviously Turkey, Greece. Now Germany would be farther north, so these would have descended further north. This is Iran right here. See the boundaries? So that's the table of nations. That's where you can trace all nations of all world history. And the descendants after these that are in the table of nations, because there's more, these are just the main ones. The, the descendants later on would be all the way to the time of Abraham. So what's the purpose of this table? Well, it gives us the origin of the nations. Secondly, it gives us the ethnic affiliation of all these peoples, how they're related ethnically. Now, sociologists today call these races. You can see where the... It's probably not a good description using the word race because, like I said, we're all of the human race. A better description would be these ethnic differences, these ethnic affiliations. Now, would they be the uh, result of evolution? Nope. Being the sun. Nope, not evolution. We call it what? Variation. Adapting to different climates, different situations. Variation. Thirdly, another purpose, it gives, and the main purpose is give us the origin of Israel. That's why Shem is last, because Israel, first Abraham, and then Israel comes through Shem. And that is the main reason for the table, why Moses records it. But it also shows Israel, the peoples that they'll be related to and deal with through history. Fourthly, it shows the unity of humanity. They all come through the descendants of the three sons, who all come through Noah, who all come eventually through Adam, or to Adam. And their wives come through. Well, the wives would be part of the descendants. Right. Mm-hmm. They're not the wives. Oh, okay. So they have some... Right. Some mixture. Yes. Yeah, good point. But all of them would come from Adam. That's the point. So the unity of humanity, that's exactly what Paul says in Acts 17. Remember we saw this passage? 17, 26 to 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. That's the biblical worldview. All nations come ultimately through Adam. And then filtered through Noah and, as you say, including the wives and the three sons and to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times. God is sovereign over the nations and the boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him. Remember, we saw that passage, looked at it in a little bit more detail. So we have the unity of all of humanity, just as Paul says and elsewhere. So that's chapter 10. And in chapter 11, we have the scattering of the nations. So, in reality, chronologically, this event that is recorded in chapter 11 actually precedes chronologically chapter 10. Did you get that? What I'm saying is chronologically, this one event that's recorded in these first nine verses of Genesis 11 actually takes place before the end product of the table of nations. In other words, the, the table of nations is the result of what happens at Babel. Does that make sense? And most conservative scholars hold that view. So let's look at chapter 11, and where did we leave off? It's Mark, Mark's turn. Read verse 11. Now the whole earth 
used the same language and the same words. Okay, what does that tell you? What's the difference between the same language and the same words? Okay, one language that has one structure, in other words, one system of syntactical rules, and one vocabulary, one set of vocabulary words. So this is shortly after the Genesis Flood, so probably prior to the Genesis Flood, there may have only been one language. Now, there are some conservatives that believe that language probably had their beginnings earlier, but Genesis 11 seems to be a, a clear dividing of the languages. So uh, that's more of a theory. And verse 1 kind of reinforces the idea of one language. And it says the whole earth used the same language. Probably Hebrew. And then verse 2, Randy. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from east, they called a plain born in Shinar, and they dwelt there. Okay. So they moved to the land of Shinar. And the implication, what's the last major event from the flood? So Ararat, from Ararat, they settled eventually in the land of Shinar. Seems real close to the flood, or relatively close. And to give you an idea, this is another satellite Google Maps map. Shinar would be this fertile crescent area, present-day Iraq. This is the Euphrates River right here. This is the Tigris Shinar. That's not necessarily east of Ararat. Well, yeah, Ararat's there. Yeah, but this is very mountainous, so they came from here. So they came this direction, if you will. And perhaps, the text doesn't tell us, perhaps there might be some settlements here. We don't know. But good observation. And then eventually we'll get to Babel. So if you know where Babel is, I think very clearly this is the site for Babylon, ancient Babylon right there. And it's believed that Babel is the forerunner to Babylon. Just to give you a perspective there. And let's read on. Somebody read verse 3. Connie. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Brick instead of stone and tar. Read 4 as well. Then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make name for ourselves and not be scattered over the paper. Okay, that is very insightful. Tells us lots, verse 4. What are some of the things that verse 4 tell us? Self-centered. This humanism. Do our own thing. Is God involved here? No. We're leaving God out. We, You know, we've forgotten about him. You know, he destroyed the earth and we honored him for a while, but he's kind of old news. We're moderns. We, we can do things on our own. So, a self-centered focus, a desire to make a name for themselves. And what else do you observe in that passage? A very clear violation or abandonment of dominion mandate, creation mandate. Lest we be scattered. In other words, God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And they say... Let's stay here. Let's build a city. Let's create our own worship environment. Let's build this tower so we can reach the heavens. And this is a reconstruction of what some think the Temple of Marduk looked like. Babylonian. This would be a forerunner of the Tower of Babel. 
And this is the great cigarette that archaeologists have uncovered at Ur. They show a lot of similarities to the temples in that area. In other words, there's other ziggurats. And by the way, these are kind of the forerunners of the pyramids. So we have this scattering. Let's read on. What does God do in response to this self-centered attitude, this desire to reach God on man's terms? Here's self-made religion again, popping its head. We want to do things our own way in terms of worship. And what does God do? Verse 5. Linda. The Lord came down. Oh, to see the Okay, we're Stone Age man. This is high tech. And God basically is bringing a stop to the technology of that day. He's going to interrupt that. In fact, that's one of the main effects of the confusion of the language. You can't convey knowledge now. Information. Well, what would be the difference between them trying to build a tower of Babel and us in the rock of the sky? I mean, are we, is that part of the science that we're supposed to learn about the heavens? Or? It depends on the motivation. If, if it's to subdue the earth and part of subduing the universe, it's part of what God has given us. I mean, science is not bad and exploration is not bad. But the text explicitly says they're building a tower, and it also tells us what else it say about that tower? Whose top will reach into heaven. In other words, it, it's a desire to basically worship God. This is a false system of worship. So we have a scattering here, and in this scattering, the essence of it is rebellion against particularly the, the creation mandate. One of the last words from God was to Noah to be fruitful again and it repeated some of the other elements of the creation mandate spreading throughout the earth. They're saying, no, let's stay together. Let's build a city. Let's build a tower. So the essence of this, of what's going on here is the, is the rebellion of man. And the essence of this passage is going to deal with God judging. He's going to intervene. And that's what we have in those first couple of verses dealing with God, five and six. And God also observes there just the high-tech environment of the culture of Babel. And I'm going to show you in the apologetic part evidence of high-tech very, very early. Let's conclude the passage. Let's read 7. Is it your turn, Loretta? 11-7. Come, let us go down and... And they are confused their language so that they will not... Understand one another's speech. Okay. And right after the little phrase that they'll be able to do whatever they envision here, it almost seems to counter that, to interrupt their humanistic ideas, to interrupt their plans to do things scientifically that would go contrary to what God had for them. Notice also, let us, what does that remind you of? Let us... Inter-Trinitarian communication, perhaps a, at least laying a groundwork for eventually a doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, verse 8. Mark. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. And read 9. Therefore, his name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Okay. 
Now, we could spend a lot more time on that passage, but I think you get the essence of what's going on there. It's a judgment. God scatters them, forces them into a situation where they have to basically fill the earth. And chapter 10 is where that initial spreading ended up, at least in the time of Abraham. And this passage is now a pivotal passage in all of Scripture, even though even the church omits this a lot and doesn't talk a lot about it. But from this point on, God is now going to deal with humanity in a radically different way. He seems to have been dealing with humanity on kind of a broad, overall basis. All men, all descendants of Adam, all descendants of Noah, But now we have a stage set where he's going to scatter the peoples and he's going to now focus on blessing one individual that will be the blessing of all peoples. And we'd have the beginnings of the call of Abraham. So this event is kind of pivotal in how God is going to deal with humanity. And we have clearly the origin of the nations and the cause of it is because people can't understand one another now. And now they will align with people of like language and like ethnicity and whatever God did. And we don't even, we can't figure that out. In fact, linguists don't, they have all kinds of theories of where language came from. Something supernatural happened such that even the thinking, the, the concepts of words and ideas in man's mind had to have been altered such that now I spoke one language and now I don't understand that language and now I'm inclined to have a different vocabulary. So something happened there. And one of the things that resulted would be a total disruption of technology. And if you just think about it, what would you do if you could not call the guy that fixes your appliance? What would you do if you could not call the guy that fixes your computer? What would you do if you could not build your own house? So you have conditions here. This is probably where you... Shortly after Babel's, where you would find Stone Age men, where just to survive, they would go to caves because they don't know how to build houses. And they would have to do te- desperate things to be able to survive. Now, others, perhaps more acquainted with house building, would settle in different areas and build houses and that sort of thing. So this is where you would put a Stone Age, is after Babel. At least that's where I would put it in terms of world history. So we have the origin of the nations, and we also have a background to Babylon. This is a major theme of scripture, background to Babylon. Babylon comes from Babel, and the religion of Babylon comes from Babel. And Babel, or Babylon, will persist where Babylon will be even destroyed, even in the future from our day. Revelation 17 and 18. This is the roots. Of Babylon. The time frame of the scattering I mentioned, if it's tied to that little phrase related to Peleg, Peleg lives about a hundred years after the flood and he dies about 300 years later. So in that time slot, you would put the scattering. It seems to be the best place.